Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're done with your Oreo. Yeah. <laughs> done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, Do we really know what happened? The brother did. The brother. That's what I thought, too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Do you want to talk about death? Yeah. I mean, I'm a murdery thingy thingy Oh, I know, right? It's because it's like it? it's like we're just in the middle I of a conversation, know. right? <laughs> now I am recording. Okay. <laughs> we were having a super interesting conversation just now, and Chloe was like, "Oh, you're not recording," <laughs> and so you guys missed out. It's will always be a mystery. It's a secret. Welcome to mystery murdery thingy. I'm Chloe. I'm Mario. I'm the one with the podcasting voice. <laughs> we were just talking about that. Exactly. That's we what we were just talking about. Oh, sorry. I immediately gave away the mystery. Uh, but yeah, no, because uh, you know, because I I like have done you know like a lot of acting. Okay, whatever. Been been, been uh, doing no shows brag. since I was no since I was sixteen. So it's been a little while. No brag. About no sixteen brag. years. Um, and, cool. and I definitely developed like a stage voice, you know, and uh, at one point it just got to be like too much, like too like stilted or like whatever. It didn't sound natural enough. So I had to like unlearn it sort of. I that's feel like maybe like, that's going to happen with po- the podcasting voice. I don't that's know. That's like the main thing I like learned at ISU. If I had to like, like put my entire acting career and like the advice advice and the direction that I've been given is to be natural. Right. And I think that's definitely the way to like ask questions. Like, why are you reacting that way? Would you react that way in real life? And usually right. it's like, no. Like- <laughs> and that's very much how like my theater uh, education at Davidson was too. And I only have ever had one acting teacher in undergrad. Um, like through the whole time. God, I've had so many. I know, but it I'm, we I'm were, it was like a much smaller school, you know, a smaller department, um, and it just worked out that way for me. Um, but anyway, he was always uh, very much in the the um, hard naturalistic yeah. um, mold of actors, uh, you know, where you you you're trying to like feel what they feel and like have empathy for that person. I actually feel like it it started me thinking about a lot of stuff that we we still talk about, like in terms of like connecting with people and like seeing things from a different perspective, like just experiencing stories in another person's like skin. It's like something that has a lot of power. Like that's part of the power of theater, right? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Got super philosophical. We're not talking about that at all today. Sorry. That's not like the topic for today or something. (laughs) Maybe I could find like a good, like, theater murder mystery oh like, you should next week like it, we ghost. should like we should both do theater mysteries theater next week yeah, yeah. oh that's a topic theater ghosts yeah because you should do that next week 
I don't think we have a theater ghost at ICU, but in high school, we definitely had a theater really? ghost. There were two. I've been in so many theaters where people claim to have theater ghosts. It's like a thing. You should definitely look into it. <laughs> we're get, get, getting ghosty a little right. bit more. Okay. Yes, okay. Yes, I love that. I know, right? We're, favorite. We're, we're very often getting a little ghosty. Um, so anyway, anyway, now that now that we've uh, had a, a all of that discussion, uh, I'm gonna go first. We decided, yes, as you may or may not know, we we decide randomly who goes first and who does not. Sometimes we it's decide before. Like, sometimes it's, it's just time. like how I feel. Right. We don't. It doesn't matter. So I am doing this week the death of Marsha Marin, which is funny because you also. I saw the tab up on your computer, yeah. and I was like, oh, how did you know I was doing that? And you're like, what? <laughs> I was just reading about it. Yeah. So I'm glad, I'm glad I mentioned I'm it. I'm glad you're doing it. Yes. Because I said I didn't think I'd really be able to flesh it out and do it justice. So. Yeah. It it's, gets a little bit involved, and there's kind of a lot of background to her. Her story is super interesting. Yeah. She's like a super interesting person, so I'm definitely going to talk a lot about her. I think you kind of go heart to heart with the... The loners. I feel like I connected with her, definitely. And, like, I, I also just felt like, you Which know. Which is why we connect, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like, she's a writer, too. And I wanted yeah. to use a lot of quotes in this one. So I, I got, All like, right, a good number sense. of quotes. Her words, people around her, just, like, again, like, trying to see this story from, like, inside of this person. And, like, understand this person a little bit better. And then also, like, the mystery of her death. Oh, so we'll, so we'll, yeah, let's yes. get into it. So Marsha Marin was born as Masa Marin in um, pre-revolution Tehran, uh, the capital of Iran, on November 11th, 1977. Very close to my own birth date. Um, another thing we have in common, both Scorpios. Yep. She became a world-famous author and was dead by the time she was 36 years old. Wow. Which in and of itself is is crazy. Um, and her parents were, like, just really hardworking people, um, you know, just in the, the middle class of Iran, um, which there is there is a large uh, middle class in, in Iran. There's a lot of poverty as well, of course. But, you know, in, in a um, what was then a very modern, very built up um, city of Tehran, you know, that was very French influenced. There were people mm. smoking cigarettes on the street nice. and <laughs> dark cafes and people drinking wine. But, of course, all of that ended when the Shah was uh, overthrown by Islamic fundamentalist radicals um, in 1979. And especially um, what was especially kind of um, treacherous for the Mehrans about this revolution, right, other than all the instability and the, you know, everything that came, that came from it, was that they were part of the minority Baha'i faith, which was seen as heretical, by by the Islamists that okay. uh, that took over, so they were in grave danger and they needed to get out of the country. Yeah. So they they started to plan and um, they at first sought, they, or they they sought uh, thought to to seek refuge in America. So that was kind of the the natural place I guess to go. Um, but uh, quote the storming of the American embassy in Tehran upended their plan. Oh. So it was like. The day they were going to go to apply for their visas, the day before that was when the U.S. Embassy was was stormed and all the Americans left. Oh, my God. Yeah, we haven't had an embassy there since, you know. Whoa, really? Well, yeah. I mean, the the Ayatollahs have been in power since 90s. They just had their 40th anniversary, actually, of the 
Iranian Revolution, which, by the way, has done no favors for the people of Iran, who are, I mean, obviously every country is special and every, like, culture, but the Iranian food, music, art, um, rug-making, history, learning, like, even you know, to this day, they're one of the great centers of higher learning, mm-hmm. which is why it's so tragic, of course, not to get too political, that, you know, part of the travel ban, you know, oh, from right. our president was saying no one from Iran could come here, which is r- fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Yes, there are obviously a lot of bad people, uh, many of them in government <laughs> in Iran, right? Like anywhere else, but especially in their government that, that took over at this point. But like... There's like hundreds of scientists and stuff that work in here in America and they're doing like important research on like finding the cure for cancer and stuff like seriously. Anyway, this is the a little bit of the background. So this is kind of where Marsha Mehran is coming from. Right. Uh, This is a little bit of like her history and her background. But she has like a lot of histories and backgrounds from a lot of different places. Um, so with something that's going to keep coming up in her story is this kind of like um, continent hopping, globe hopping. She was like the, oh, the ultimate globe trotter. She traveled her entire life all over the world constantly. Wow. And it started when she was two years old, when, of course, her parents did end up leaving Iran, um, not for America, but for Buenos Aires in Argentina um, after a chance encounter with the Argentine ambassador. And uh, Abbas Meron, Marsha's father, um, describes it um, thusly, quote, one Friday night, we were invited to a dinner party by a friend whose wife was from Chile. We encountered the ambassadors of Chile and Argentina. We discussed many things, including our interrupted plan. That is when the Argentinian ambassador kindly offered help in giving us a visa. We left within 15 days for Buenos Aires. Oh, close that's quote. Awesome. Yeah, so they booked it out of the country. And like I said, this pattern of globe trotting would continue throughout Marsha's, you know, tragically short life, um, which ended eventually in 2004 on a remote coast in Western Ireland. Right, right. So that's, that's kind of where we're going to. But at least for a few years, um, you know, from two to six or so she was just a a happy you know little um bright precocious girl um in her parents new cafe el pollo loco the crazy chicken yeah (laughs) uh which is what it it was called in in buenos aires and um it was pretty successful you know it was iranian themed and and they did pretty well for a while and this also started a lifelong preoccupation with food that um would really influence her novel writing but also would have a great influence on, on, on her life as well and kind of her relationship with food, good and bad. Um, this sort of idyllic existence, though, in Argentina um, was shattered once again when insecurity um, arose due to the Argentinian military junta that took over in the 70s. Mm. If you've listened to our episode about the, the disappeared children yes, of yes. the Argentine dirty war, right. that's, you know, we, we talk about this a little bit more. Um, there was also, of course, a concomitant economic downturn, and there was also the Falklands War, um, which was a, a big um, theme in some of Marsha's writing later on, which was a war between Britain and Argentina over some islands o- off the coast of Argentina. 
Um, and that forced – all of that forced the Mehrans to leave, to flee once again. This time they did get to America though um, where they lived in Miami at first and things didn't necessarily get that much better at that point actually for the Mehrans. Um Marsha started though a serious study of the piano mm-hmm. that, that she would continue on for a while. She, she really wanted to be a concert pianist um, earlier in her life. And, of course, this, you know, kind of points to her burgeoning artistic side. Her parents, though, did end up getting divorced. Mm. And then she was forced to find another, yet another haven when Marcia did not satisfy a residency requirement uh, of the U.S.'s and lost her permanent residency visa. So so she could no longer live in the U.S. So um, did she – how old was she when her parents divorced? Did she, like – live with her mom or her dad. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm getting to that. Oh. So she was she was about 14 um when her parents divorced. And uh so this, you know, all of these circumstances, right? Her parents divorced, this kind of like bureaucratic snafu thing that she was caught up in had of course a profoundly negative effect on on her, on Marsha. And uh her father um here's another quote from her father about this. Quote, Marcia was a victim of injustice and cruelty. While America houses millions of criminals, drug dealers, illegal immigrants, and false refugees, it could not find a place for a gifted, brilliant author. I know how much she suffered. She cried. She moaned. She sobbed. Close quote. Oh, my God. So it really affected her. And obviously, I don't agree with, like, some of the stuff he's saying there. <laughs> like, I think he he's understandably, like, a very jaded, cynical father talking about his daughter. But... It seems like what happened to her was, like, pretty shitty. Yeah. And, like, they probably could have just worked it out. And she was, like, a kid. Like, how was she supposed to know, you know? Um, it wasn't her fault, right? Um, so Marsha and her mom, she ended up living with her mom, moved to Australia. So, again, new continent, new start. Right. Maybe it'll work out this time, right? So a few years go by. She's, you know, 17 at this point, And she's lived in... Iran, Argentina, America, and now Australia. Oh four different countries, four different continents. And um, it should come as little surprise then that she chose to, again, globetrot to New York City. Okay. Understandable, right? She's 19. She's yeah. apparently a firecracker, you know, very adventurous, very fun. Um, so she wanted to be where the action was, you know, in New York City. Choice. Yeah. She got there with $200. Oh. And nothing else. The clothes on her back. And basically she um, started working at this restaurant where (laughs) eventually she noticed that it was not very busy, like, ever. Like, no one was going there, but the people running it still had money. And she comes to find out that it was a mob front. So that was kind of her first experience. And here's a quote from Marsha. I arrived in New York with only $200 in my pocket. I worked initially as a hostess in a restaurant owned by Russian mobsters. There were no customers there, which I thought a bit odd at first, until I realized that the restaurant was just a front for their other dealings. Close quote. So, yeah. And she was, like I said, very adventurous. And Marcia, even though she was only 19, did walk you know, into a bar, tried to get served at a bar, uh, happened to be Ryan's Irish pub. And this was in uh, 1999. And she met the bartender um, who um, would eventually become her 
sometime partner. I want to be a bartender so bad. I know, right? Uh, one thing you get to do is uh, you meet people. And uh, this man, Christopher Collins, um, he uh, described his first encounter with her like this. Quote, when she walked into that bar, she lit it up, says Christopher, who is four years older than Marsha. Quote, I knew there were only two ways I could go. Either ID her and kick her out or ask her out. After several Malibu Bay breezers, Marsha later told an interviewer, quote, I thought the Irish bartender was starting to look good. (laughs) And then uh, Christopher says she blew me off the first few times I asked her out. But the romance did kind of start going when Christopher kind of uh, set this, you know, kind of a romantic trap, let's say for Marsha, where he um, was kissing another girl to make her jealous. And it totally worked. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> and Marsha was like, that. from that point on, she was like all about it. And Aww. it went like whiz bang, right? So um, they move in together, right? Uh, two weeks after they basically first meet. Two months later, she proposes to him. Yeah, my girl. <laughs> right. She she was a she was a uh, a lady who knew what she wanted, um, and she uh, here's a quote from her about it. Quote: I call uh, from Marsha. Quote: I called him up one night and said, "Hey, do you want to get married?" And he said, "Are you serious?" So we did. Eight months later in Australia, we hadn't planned it. It was a spur of the moment thing because I'm not the most romantic person, Marcia told the Independent of London years later after her first novel was published. Quote, we didn't even have wedding bands and still don't, but we know we'll be together for the rest of our lives. Didn't, oh, didn't end up being the case. <laughs> and then Chris, um, here's a quote from him after Marcia died. Uh, quote, we could tell we were right for each other. There was a synergy between us. It was nice to have somebody who, who was as passionate about you as you were about them. Everybody, everything was urgent with her. She asked me to marry her soon after we moved in. Then she said she was moving back to Australia and I should come. I've never known anyone to move through so many places or jobs as Marsha. Three days, a week, a month, a year. You were never sure where you were uh, or where you would be next. You could say I was along for the ride. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, and I feel like the end of that quote really encapsulates his his kind of relationship with her. Like, he was along for the ride. I love that. She was driving. You know, she yeah. was the one who was like, okay, now we're going to move to wherever. Um, but this very fiery romance did burn out quickly as well. Um, it kind of seemed it was destined. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Maybe it, I, I really have no idea, but... It it just seems like so many things, I think, in her life. It seemed so great for a while, and then it turned sour. Yeah. That seems like it's like the, I don't know, the the unfortunate, tragic, kind of like repeating circumstance in her life. It's it's very sad, but but she's such a cool person and like fun person. I don't know. It's, it's, this story gives me weird emotions. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, so Marsha and Christopher divorced in 2013, you know, uh, after about four years. But before they did, they actually continent hopped one more time. They stayed in Australia for about a year after they married, and then they moved to Christopher's homeland of Ireland. Mm -hmm. And this is where she gets, you know, introduced to Ireland. They moved at first to Dublin. Christopher managed a pub, 
Marsha was a receptionist. Marsha also started writing obsessively, which oh. it would also become a hallmark of her life. So it seems that seems kind of kind of random. What? That she, she just randomly started writing? I mean, she had always been interested in writing. Um, she wanted to be a concert pianist. I guess at some point she decided she wanted more so to be a writer. Yeah. But it was always going to be something artistic. You know, she always wanted, she always knew she wanted to be an artist of some kind, I think. Um, so she also started, though, becoming kind of a loner at this time, which also became a theme. Um, because Christopher would be, you know, staying out late, you know, managing this pub. Um, closing it out, you know, staying till whenever the drawers get counted, right? And then she would be there writing at home by herself, binging on Haagen-Dazs, which she also loved to do. And uh, she started writing a short story that eventually became a novella that eventually turned into a novel. She just kept writing, right? And Marcia describes the instant that she knew that she would be a writer. Quote, I was walking across the Millennium Bridge a pedestrian bridge in Dublin, one day when it suddenly hit me like a lightning bolt. I know that this sounds really cheesy, but it was an epiphanous moment. I stopped and looked around at the beautiful lights and the people walking past and said out loud, I'm going to be a writer. From that moment on, I really pursued it with drive and commitment. And I eventually found an agent who I instantly liked and was interested in representing me. Close quote. So that was that was kind of how it happened, hard like work. according to her. Yeah, and just a fuck ton of hard work. So, okay, Marsha moves back to New York with Christopher. Okay, so New York, Australia, Dublin, back to New York. <laughs> and is six weeks away, okay, from giving her first book to the publisher. Oh. And astoundingly, she decides after reading through the drafts again that the first – um book that was what's supposed to be her first book, right, quote, was depressing and dark, and I realized that if I wasn't touched by it, no one else would be, close quote. So she got up the next morning and started writing a new book. What? Completely new book from scratch, and this became Pomegranate Soup, and she wrote it in six weeks, and it became world famous and launched her career wow i am from scratch i'm like shook right so i can't i can't even like i know right she was brilliant um truly brilliant and she worked obsessively again could be good could be bad right gives you a gives you a book it makes you a star but it, does it also slowly kill you? I don't know. I guess we'll maybe dig into it here a little bit. So, um, yes, this, this would kind of be her existence for the remainder of her 36 years. Her agent loved the book that she produced in six weeks. Um, it became her claim to fame. Um, she published it in 2005, again called Pomegranate Soup. And it was through this book and her association with Christopher that her connection to the remote western coast of Ireland and its mystical mountain, Croig Patrick, was cemented. Apparently, this is a very mystical mountain, Croig Patrick. Mm. Um, Croig Patrick is a 2,000 or so foot tall mountain on the coast of Ireland. 
and on the, on the extreme western coast of Ireland. And it serves as a pilgrimage site as its mythical uh, – it, it was the mythical site of fasting and prayer by St. Patrick in 441 um, AD. Okay. And its religious significance also may predate Christianity. So that this has been a site that people have recognized that has some kind of mystical aura for a long, long time. And uh, Marcia also felt this, and, and she talked about it. Uh, quote, The mountain quickly came to inhabit my imagination. Its dispassionate presence is so powerful, so evocative, that along with the smell of peat fires, the spirited fiddle sessions, and the cracking humor of the Irish. Close quote. So she 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 was really getting into this place, you know. I mean, um, yes, she was from Iran. Yes, she spent a lot of time in America, uh, in Australia. But somehow Ireland's... it seemed like the western coast of Ireland was just where she was meant to be. That's it was, satisfying. Yeah, it was like her spirit. she was just kind of soul-searching for so long, you know. Yeah, she was like a, a lonely fisherman standing on a pier, you know, looking out into the ocean. Oh, like. Wow. They, in her Did you soul. Read that somewhere? No, and I just came up with it. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, so um, her professional career, like I said, taking off, doing really well, right? Um, but Christopher and Marsha's marriage ended in 2005. And what little balance that he had provided to her went away. And she became even more obsessively into her writing mm. and into binging on food. And eventually she published another novel and then she was going to publish another novel, right? This is what you do. You get a contract, you write novels Um, because this was her life again. Like she had no other choice. She had no other backup plan. Like she was going to be a writer one way or the other. And um, her third novel that she was working on at at the time of her death, um, the Margaret Thatcher school of beauty. It was, it was pretty much all done. It was a magical realist novel dealing with the Falklands War, so getting mm. back to that subject matter. And the writing process took a physical toll on Marcia. Um, she describes it like this, quote, I've spent the last five months working on the edit. Hardly a night has passed that I have not woken up midway through sleep, body drenched in sweat, heart beating out the rhythms of some ancient tarantella inside my chest. I looked like I had aged ten years, eyes drooping, skin ashen, a vague recollection that I had not washed my hair for a week straight. Wow. Close quote. Yeah. Um, so physical dissipation, mental instability, these started to really haunt Marcia um, reportedly for the last few years of her life. And Croak Patrick and the, the salty sea air, right, were her constant and usually only companions while she furiously tapped away on her laptop, um, cooked, ate. Um, did not keep her living quarters well-camped, apparently. Um, Her ex-husband, Christopher, described her increasing isolation, quote, Marcia was battling her own demons. I think she lived some of the fantasies that she wrote and withdrew from real life. It was difficult to watch. The people she knew, she pushed away little by little. She could never accept help. It was one of her strengths and one of her greatest problems, Mm -hmm. close quote. And that seems like a something about Marsha too, that her greatest strengths were her greatest weaknesses. Yeah. What what made her uh world famous also seems to have led to her demise. It it's she's just a a tragic person. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. So the the town of Leckenvie, um, which is where she was, you know, that right there under the shadow of Krug Patrick, became Marcia's last home after living on so many continents, you know, being immersed in so many cultures. It was the culture of small town, 3,000 people, western rural Ireland that was her final, you know, resting place. And the last communication that Marcia seems to have made on Earth was with her landlady, who inquired about unpaid rent, which apparently she had not paid in some time. Um, And this is from the Irish Times, quote, In a statement read to the inquest, Mrs. Walsh said that on April 12th, Miss uh, Mayron sent her a text, quote, Teresa, I have been vomiting blood for the past few weeks. I'll get back to you in a few days to see what I am going to do about things. I am still pretty sick. Close quote. It read. So, yeah. Clearly, she was in some kind of physical ailment or distress of some kind. But this is essentially the mystery. What happened during this period. Um, After which, of course, receiving... Uh, no reply. Uh, her landlady, Miss Wall, Mrs. Walsh, um, phoned her many times between April twelfth and April twenty first, um, but was um, you know ab- unable to reach her. Went to the apartment three times, banged on the door. No one came to the door. Oh, wow. On the final occasion, April thirtieth, um, she once more banged on the doors and windows. After failing to get a reply, she used her key to gain entry and found Marsha Mayron dead lying on the floor, face down, surrounded by a horrible scene, you know, uh, of, you know, disarray and wearing only a wooden woolen cardigan. She then called the police, the Gerdai, as they're called in, um, in, Ireland. in Ireland. Mrs. Walsh told the inquest that any time she had called to the apartment previously, it was generally messy. Quote, she appears to have thrown herself fully into writing. Mrs. Walsh said, and that's according to the Irish Times. Um, A consultant pathologist, Dr. Thomas um, Nemeth of Mayo General Hospital, County Mayo, Ireland, performed the postmortem. However, Dr. Nemeth's work was severely hampered by the state of decay. Oh, okay. How long was it? He estimated that. Yeah, he estimated that her body had um, been there for six days. Oh, okay. Clearly, Marcia had also been sick in the weeks before her death. Um, she describes vomiting to her landlady lady as well as others, but we don't know. You know, I mean, she had a history of gastrointestinal issues as well, so it seems to obviously have had something to do with that, right? And that not maybe being handled properly. Um, but Dr. Nemeth really couldn't come to any... Um, conclusions he he um, here's a quote from him a couple of quotes no convincing and satisfactory histologic or laboratory evidence supports this theory um, but he says that the cause of death cannot be based um, oh sorry um, but he feels that it might be inflammatory bowel disease um, which resulted in an electrolyte imbalance which apparently if that happens you can die like very quickly Um But uh, he says that, quote, the cause of death cannot be based on vague speculations. I conclude that the cause of death and underlying causes are unknown, close quote. So he set the date of death as April 24th, 2014, and ruled that um, it was going to be an open verdict and that uh, we could not determine the cause of death. But 
investigators, you know, obviously the guy looked into this and everything, um, but they said that there was no reason to suspect foul play. And, um, yeah, that's really the mystery. And, you know, news of the death of this very, very beautiful, um, just as a side note, she was very beautiful, um, young, up-and-coming writer in rural Ireland, um, obviously rebounded throughout the world, but especially in, you know, the cities of the U.S., Argentina, Iran, Australia, you know, all the places that she had lived and, and worked. Um, but in Luckenby, the little town in which she passed, Marsha's presence was hardly noticed. No one knew her in this place where she ended up dying. It's crazy. Right. The right. You know, the, la- the uh, uh, rather, the uh, the lady who ran the pub from which Marsha would get a lot of Wi-Fi. She would kind of yeah, sit out there she, and get Wi-Fi. Yeah. This was she like, refused. Like mountain, right? Yeah, it was right next to Krog Patrick. Um, she refused to ever go into the pub. Yeah. Not once did she take the invitation, like, go inside in the warmth and just, you don't even have to talk to anyone. <laughs> don't even have to buy anything, she yeah. told her. You could just sit and be with other people. But, again, she was... A little bit of a misanthrope, you know? Um, although you wouldn't, apparently, I've never read any of her books, but you apparently you wouldn't know it from her books. Apparently they're very warm. But anyway, um, Marcia lives on, obviously, in her writings, um, including some that were posthumously published, and in the mystery, the great mystery of her untimely passing, um, because we'll never know really what happened in that squalid rental, you know, on that windswept coast in western rural Ireland. But... Um, she, it's, it's a, it's a really good story. And like I said, she led such a, uh, cool life. You know, it's just really cool to look into her as in, just in terms of that. So. Wow. Yeah. That's my story. That's tragic. Very tragic. Yeah. Sorry if this one was a little bit of a downer. That's, uh, it's, hmm. Maybe. But, you know, there's lots of different kinds of mysteries. So. Maybe you like know. it all went to her gut. Like maybe all of the stress and. And the yeah. unhealthy habits and the depression, maybe it all yeah. just went to her gut. And yeah, I mean, some kind of, like, comorbidity over. between, like, a physical ailment, like, not treating it well and, you know, some maybe some mental issues, emotional, hormonal issues as well. So, yeah. I don't know. We'll never know. We'll never know. We'll never know. You'll never know. That's the theme <laughs> All right. of the podcast. Right. If you didn't catch that vibe. Yeah. If you like getting clear answers, don't come to this podcast. That is not what we are here for. Uh, <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. What you got? Mine's a downer as well. Okay. Good. Good, 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 good. Um, we'll do some theater mysteries next week and, you know, we'll get back to something a little happier. So I found an article called who killed the Jeff Davis eight. And it's an article on medium medium medium.com by investigative journalist, Ethan Brown. And out of all the articles on this case, this one was the best because there was true, investigating done that nobody else Mm -hmm. had done so this is the story of eight women whose bodies were found between 2005 and 2009 in the canals and swamps of the small louisiana town of jennings louisiana 
I didn't know that's what it was going to be. What? That it was going to be like a, a, a um, serial killer. Was it? Oh. Okay. <laughs> um, but a it mystery. was it was on the unknown serial killers page. Mm-hmm. Okay, on Wikipedia but or Reddit on or... Wikipedia. Yeah. But this article strongly suggests mm. otherwise. I see. It problematizes that notion. Right. Kill. Cool. Right. So, um, not oh. murder's not cool. The problematizing is cool. Anyway. It is. So, um. I also um, I also learned a new word. Ooh, parish. I Parish. Uh-huh. And I knew the word parish as sure. in a church, but apparently specifically in Louisiana And only in Louisiana. It's like a a county kind of? True. So I was like, I don't understand them talking both about Jefferson Davis Parish, Louisiana, and Jennings, Louisiana. I was really confused. Oh, okay. Um so Jefferson Davis Davis Parish is a county. I see. And then the town is Jennings. Right. Just going to clear that Terrible up. name for a parish, by the way. Jefferson Davis. <laughs> Terrible. Awful. Uh, <laughs> they just changed that. I know. It's Louisiana. <laughs> oh, I know, I know, I know. Um, but uh, um, they're called the Jeff Davis Eight and also the Jennings Eight. Okay. This one was, this article referred to them as the Jeff Davis Eight. I see. So, May 20th, 2005, 28-year-old Loretta Lynn Chasen Lewis was found under the bridge over the Grand Marais Canal, clad in blue jeans, blue panties, and a white short-sleeved blouse. Her body was decayed, but showed no evidence of injury aside from a small patch of blood under the scalp. She was the first one found. The other victims are Ernestine Marie Daniels Patterson, who was 30, Kristen Gary Lopez, who was 21, Whitney Dubois, who was 26, Laconia Muggy Brown, who was 23, Crystal Shea Benoit Zeno, who was 24, Brittany Gary, who was 17, and the final body of Nicole Guillory, 26, was found off Interstate 10 in 2009. So from 2005 to 2009. So this is a very weird rabbit hole of a case that also involves a lot of police corruption misconduct um and it's probably why it's still unsolved you know 10 laters after the last body was found Mm -hmm. Uh, 10 years later right so laconia muggy brown and ernestine patterson they had their throats slit the others were too decomposed to tell for to tell for sure but the coroner stated that it was um, most likely uh, asphyxiation. So all of these women, unfortunately, were living in a world full of drug addiction, mental illness, poverty, and sex work. They were all sex workers. Um, so it wasn't until December of 2008 that a, like, a, a task force was formed that was made of, up of like the FBI, the sheriff's office, and the, like, small-town police. It was, like, a little bit of everybody. There was a name for it, but I don't remember what it was. Um, they were looking for a serial killer, even though it was uncertain. The arrest reward went from 35000 to $85,000. But, I mean, there was really no breakthrough. Mm-hmm. So, there 
I'm just going to state this right off the bat. There were a lot of connections between the victims, their families. This is a small town. They all knew each other. Um, And that's what also makes this case really interesting is that everybody knows a little bit of something. And one of the theories as to why these women were killed is because they knew too much about Mm. something. They knew who killed the other girl and they knew who killed the other two girls. And then she ended up dead. The one who knew Mm. people who witnesses were killed and people who knew things were killed. Mm -hmm. Um, So like I said, they knew each other, Brittany Gary and Christy Gary Lopez were cousins. uh, And Brittany Gary lived with Crystal Benoit just before she was killed. They all frequented um, an inn called the Beaudreau. I think that's how you'd say that Beaudreau Inn. So, the inn was like w- definitely one of those like uh, pay by the hour right. kind of sleazy inns. Love shack, love shack. A little darker than a love shack. Dark love shack. <laughs> yeah, dark love shack. It was like a hot spot for right. sex trade and dr- lots of drug trafficking. Because this is I this is I ten. So it's 400 miles long, and it connects Houston to New Orleans. Mm. So um, huge hotspot for drug trafficking, specifically sure. cocaine and marijuana. Um, there was, and the Bordeaux Inn was like just one of the one of the stops along mm. the way. So each victim has different suspects, but then again, all of those suspects are connected, know each other, know the same people. Um, all of the victims, except for Ernestine Patterson uh, were connected to a 58-year-old man named Frankie Richard who um, owned a strip club. He used to be a pimp. Now he owns a strip club. Uh, So Frankie Richard is kind of in the middle of this case, but he... All of the charges that have been brought up against him have been dropped for very frustrating reasons, and I'll, I'll get into that. But all of almost all of the women knew him and were affiliated with him and he's kind of in the middle of this tornado of a issue so he was charged briefly for Kristen Gary Lopez's murder in 2007 but the charges were dropped after witnesses gave conflicting statements and a key piece of evidence uh was mishandled and I'll get into that specifically later so two other men uh Byron Chad Jones and Lawrence Nixon um, and Lawrence Nixon is a cousin of the fifth victim, Laconia Brown. Uh, they were briefly charged with second degree murder in the Ernestine Patterson case. They were implicated by several witnesses, but the sheriff's office didn't test the crime scene until 15 months later and found it quote, failed to demonstrate the presence of blood end quote. Huh? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Come on. That's uh that's not even close to being good. Absolutely police work. awful. Absolutely awful. Um the botched crime scene work contributed in part to the collapse of the case. Yeah. So they were Well, if you don't investigate, it's hard to investigate. And that's <laughs> like kind of the first thing, you know. And this keeps coming up again and again and again. Absolutely terrible. Wow. So uh like I stated a little bit before, the, the the murdered women, the women who ended up being killed, provided information to law enforcement about the other 
people who ended up victims and then they turned up dead themselves. So Laconia Brown, the fifth victim, she was interrogated about the 2005 killing of Ernestine Patterson, who's the second victim. Um, So the uh, journalist, Ethan Brown, he did a lot of digging and he had obtained a task force report in which one witness claims that Brown spotted the body of Loretta Lewis, the 28 year old, the very first victim floating in uh, the canal before uh, the guy who discovered her there, the guy who discovered her there, his name was Jerry Jackson. And he's the one who like found her and called the police. But apparently uh, Laconia Brown saw it beforehand. So in 2006 detectives investigating the murder interrogated Kristen Gary Lopez, the third victim. So these women kept being interrogated as well. All eight victims were supposedly, uh, we don't know for sure, police informants and told law enforcement about the Jennings drug trade. Mm. So they all went to that inn and they all knew a lot about a whole lot. Um, A separate sex worker even warned the sheriff's department that the last victim, Nicole Guillory, would be next. And she eventually was. And they didn't do anything about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, So she, Nicole, she had a record. Um, But a lot of the charges against her were mysteriously dropped, which is common for informants to have their charges dropped in exchange for off-the-record information. Uh, In at least six of uh, the cases that she was involved in, the charges against her ended in, this is Latin? I don't know how to say it. What is it? Nolle prosequi? Nolle prosequi. Nolle prosequi. Yeah, it means decline to prosecute. So right. It's unwilling to pursue. Unwilling to pursue, yeah. It's it's essentially the um the uh district attorney or whoever, right, saying we don't have enough evidence to bring this case. Yeah. Like we think you're guilty. We're not saying that you're innocent. We just don't have enough evidence to bring the case. Yeah. That happened six times in mm. the stuff that she was charged for oh, okay so she like many of the women supposedly knew a lot maybe too much about the drug trade uh so in the weeks uh leading up to when she died before she died she was really paranoid she was definitely afraid of someone or something she claimed that she knew who killed the others as well and she never like eventually she stopped going out by herself and she stopped going out at all. She even had her four kids placed with relatives. Like she, yeah, she replaced herself from them. So her, her, her mother, Barbara filed a missing persons report on August 19th, 2009. And then her body was found the same day along the I-10. Her mother believes that she was killed because she witnessed police misconduct or worse. Mm. Um, Laconia Muggy Brown, she had a similar story. Her sister, Gail Brown, said that just before the Muggy was killed, she told her family that Muggy, quote, was investigating a murder with a cop. The cop wanted to give her $500 to tell her what happened. She knew what was going on. I think it was a cop that killed my sister, end quote. Oh, wow. Laconia Brown was last seen by her family March or uh, May 26th, 2008. So when her body was found, her throat was slit, she was barefoot, and she had been doused in bleach. Uh, Her family stated that the days leading up to her death, uh, she was also living in fear. And it was almost like she knew what was going to happen to her. Like, she knew that 
she knew too much. Um, note that Muggy Brown was one of was the one who was close friends with the seventh victim, uh, Brittany Gary. So it's not a surprise, you know, that this case goes unsolved because of the popular and actually pretty plausible theory of police corruption. So there is actually a long, long history of police misconduct and corruption in specifically in Jennings, Louisiana goes back decades in 1997 Dateline even aired an hour long expose about the department. Wow. Yeah. So this shit is like famously terrible. Yeah. It's bad. Um, Drugs go missing. It's common. Cash disappears. Common sexual assault within the department. Illegal traffic stops. Straight up racism. All kinds of scandal. All kinds of crazy shit has gone on um, for, for years. That being said, in December of 2000... I will say that probably got some nice swamps. Nice swamps? With bodies? Oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. No positives over here. (laughs) Try to find a silver lining. Get out me swamp. (laughs) Some good alligator hunting? Uh, They eat the bodies. Oh, Oh, no. Uh, lose, lose. Just try to just try to get some oh, levity God. in here a little bit. Oh God, <laughs> it's uh, going downhill. Okay. So that being said, in December of 2007, Sergeant Jesse Ewing received word that two female inmates at the city hall wanted to talk about the unsolved homicides, and uh, there was only four at that time um, in 2007. So the women claimed, and this is where a lot of it comes from. These these interview tapes that Ethan Brown, the investigative journalist actually listened to, and they had never been Mm. open to the public before. So the women claimed that high ranking officers had been directly involved in covering up the murders. And like I said, these interviews were tapes. Ewing's, sent them to a private investigator knowing that they would probably somehow fucking disappear if they went to the sheriff's office. Mm -hmm. Um, But, the private investigator sent it to the FBI and the FBI sent it back to the sheriff's office. Oh God. And up there anyway. So, uh, like I said, they'd never been made public. Mm -hmm. So the tapes have highly specific information about the murders of two of the sex workers, Whitney Dubois and Kristen Gary Lopez. So as well as local law enforcement's, you know, alleged role in covering up, Frankie Richards' role in at least one of the killings. So this is where he comes in. Um, One of the inmates claimed that a sex worker named Tracy Chasen, who um, I believe is related to the first victim, Loretta Lynn Chasen, one of the inmates claimed that she had told uh, her that uh, she was there that night that Richard and his niece, Hannah Connor, killed Whitney Dubois. They'd all been getting... So this is what she says. She says, they'd all been getting high, and when uh, Dubois refused Richard's sexual advances, he got aggressive, he started punching her, and the the niece, Hannah Connor, held Dubois' head back, and they drowned her. Um, Tracy Chasen gave police a similar story as as the inmate. Um, which led to Richard and Hannah being charged with second-degree murder. So this Mm. is the charge against Richard. Kristen Gary Lopez uh, was one of the victims, was 
intellectually disabled. She received supplemental security income checks every month. She, uh, when she was growing up, she participated in, uh, Special Olympics events in Baton Rouge, uh, and she considered uh, Frankie Richard a father figure and used to call him Uncle Frankie. So he, Frankie Richard, admitted to Ethan Brown that he was with her and Tracy uh, partying in a rented motel room, and he claimed that he had suspected them of stealing and that he th- he had thrown them out. Kristen Gary Lopez was found March eighteenth, two thousand seven, floating in a canal. Which matches more of what the inmates said about her being drowned. Um, The inmates also talk about a conspiracy between Richard and a top sheriff's office investigator to destroy evidence. So the inmates said that um, uh, Frankie Richard put Lopez's body in a barrel and then used a truck to move it this truck was purchased by warren gary the chief criminal investigator and then he the body was discarded he like used the truck to uh discard the body so apparently frankie richard and warren gary were good friends and he knew all about the killing uh warren gary cleaned the truck and sold it so that was the missing piece of evidence oh okay um was the truck he was later fined and taken off the investigation, only to be promoted to head of the evidence room. Of what? course. Yeah. What? Terrible. Fucking awful. Um, tra- and Tracy, it's just bad. It's just bad. It's like never, it never ends. Yeah. Tracy, uh, she was the witness who kept changing her story, resulting in the drop charges. So the lost evidence was the truck and Tracy was the witness. Um, that resulted in the drop charges. So, put simply, the statements from the two female inpa- inmates portrayed Richard and his associates working with the sheriff's office to get rid of evidence in the Kristen Gary Lopez case. But the sergeant who took the statements was forced out of his job, and so the al- all of it was ignored, just ignored by law enforcement. So, I'll finish up with one final theory. On April 19th, 2005, an informant tipped off local law enforcement that there was, quote, ongoing narcotics activity at a particular house in Jennings. So according to the investigators, the informant said that, that two people who were on probation were there, including Tracy Chasen. So the next day, just after 10.20 p.m., a team of Louisiana probation and parole agents, uh, Jennings Police Department detectives, and an investigator with the uh, Parish District Attorney's Office, they raid the house, they burst through the front door, and they found dozens of drug users crowded inside the living room. Then, probation and parole agent John Briggs Becton encountered Leonard Crochet? Crochet? Uh, yeah. No, I crochet? would say crochet. Crochet, it's Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah. Crochet. A ponytailed 43-year-old prescription pill dealer. So the the agent, Briggs Becton, told Crochet to hold to show his hands. But according to his, the statement he gave, uh Crochet then made a sudden movement with his hands toward his belt line. Believing that Crochet was reaching for a weapon, he fired his gun, and with a single shot, he struck him in the chest and killed him. According to the statement provided later by fellow probation and parole by a fellow probation and parole agent, uh, 
Briggs Becton approached Crochet's body muttering, oh shit. Uh, so he called an ambulance to the scene uh, and those found inside were taken into custody and they're transported to the police department for questioning. Investigators concluded that they were, quote, unable to locate any items in the immediate vicinity of Crochet's location in the residence, which could have been construed as a weapon. Further, no persons inside the residence at the time of the shooting, whether law enforcement or civilian, could provide any evidence that Crochet had brandished a weapon, end quote. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty bad. A few months later, in July, uh, prosecutors argued in front of a grand jury, so he, like, went to court, that... He committed the crime of net negligence, negligent homicide, negligent homicide, negligent homicide. Uh, And they came back with a decision of, quote, no true bill, no probable cause or evidence to show that a crime has been committed. Right. Are we surprised? Police officer. No, of course not. Not surprised. I was surprised that it actually went to trial. Me too. Especially (laughs) in that area. Yeah. So the theory is that. The crochet killing sparked the deaths of the Jeff Davis eight. All of them were present in the house when he was killed. Oh my God. The girls ended up being killed maybe because they saw something they weren't supposed to. Right. So Frankie Richard even connected the killing to the murdered women. Quote, he says, quote, most of them girls was at a raid when the crochet, when the cro- when the crochet boy got killed. Most of the girls that are dead today were there that night. End quote. The witness list includes, yeah, so Ethan Brown uh, got a witness list, and he in- it includes the third victim, Kristen Gary Lopez, along with a man named Alvin Bootsy Lewis, who, like I said, everybody's connected, who's the boyfriend of the fourth victim, Whitney Dubois, and also the brother-in-law of the first victim, Loretta Lewis. I'm telling you, man, yeah. small town. Yeah. Small town, Loretta Lewis. So, um... His name was on there, and a man named Harvey Bird Dog Burley, who later told Du Bois' older brother Mike that, quote, I'm close to finding out who killed your sister, end quote, and was then found stabbed to death in his apartment. His murder also remains unsolved. Wow. Yeah. So the killing started after Cro- uh, Crochet was killed. Mm. So that's what I've got on wow. um, the Jeff Davis 8. That's quite a mystery. Crazy story, right? Yeah. So my sources are the Medium.com article by Ethan Brown, a New York Times article by Campbell Rob- Rob- Robertson, Rolling Stones article by Katie Drell, and some web sleuths forums. Cool. I forgot to do my sources, so I'm going to do them now. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, Carroll at The Journal uh, in Ireland, Matt O'Brien, Mercury News, Wikipedia, uh, Carolyn, o- Carolyn Kellogg at The LA Times, um, Jennifer Newton at Daily Mail, Jason Murphy, RTE, um, an I- Iran Times story, Tom Scheel at Irish Times, Kahal Milmo at The Independent, and Abbas Maron on MarshaMaron.com. Cool. That's it. Yes. Cool. Did you have any weird shit in the news? No, but I have good shit in the news. Ooh, I love it. Um... Let me. First of all, thank you for listening, y'all. Yes, yes thank you for listening. Um, We've been doing a lot check- of extra stuff, trying to get y'all some new content. Yeah, check us out on um, uh, the uh, Facebook, the Facebook, the Twitter, the Twitter, 
the Instagram. The Instagram. You can visit my the Twitter at MarioTex30. Yep. So that's my the Twitter. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and then Patreon, of course. Yep. And we put up our new uh, extra segment called Come Drink With Us. Um, so we've got one up there if you give right. us a dollar a month. It's loose. It's pretty charming. Yeah, we talk about a couple articles. We talk about uh, our musical interests. We get a little political. So uh, if you want to hear that shit, give us a buck. Cool. Um, so my good shit in the news is from the New York Times. Uh, the article is called HIV's Reported Cured at a Second yes. Patient, a Milestone in the Global AIDS mm-hmm. Epidemic. I've been hearing a lot about this. Right. So what they ended, they, th- it happened um, in London, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep, London. And they, what they were trying to do was duplicate the procedure that led to the first long-term remission 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they were pretty successful. Um, And it was a bone marrow transplant, which I feel like has cured a lot of things or is beneficial for a lot of things. A lot of really important, terrifying things. Yeah, because that's from where blood cells, a lot of blood cells are made. All blood cells, maybe. I'm not sure. So, yeah, it's like it, it, it. you can, like, replenish the body with good cells, not only get rid of the bad cells. So it's, like, yes. really powerful. Yes. Um, so it's very... It's very exciting. It kind of, uh, it's, it's like satisfying. It's like, you know, that, that we're like making progress and that it's Mm -hmm. not that a cure isn't like some kind of fantasy. Yeah, no, definitely. And, um, they're, they're always careful to say that a second adult that was cured because there have been some babies that have been cured, Mm. um, just by being given large amounts of retrovirals, I believe, uh, just after birth, um, they're able to just like clear them. So, um, yeah, it's you know the the development of antiretrovirals is really crazy miracle, and this procedure is like a crazy miracle. But the thing about it is, you have to get the donation of the blood uh, of the bone marrow from a donor that has this very rare genetic. Um, uh, thing where they don't have a certain gene I, that makes them more resistant to HIV. <laughs> so that's part of why it took 12 years because yeah. it's just like so rare that that person is going to come up right, right in the right context and everything. So, um, good, good, good. Um, I could do some weird, some good shit in the news too. You got some? Um, I mean, not just like space. There's lots of good space stuff going on right now. Um, there was some good uh, pictures of Ultima Thule that came back, you know, from the uh, flyby a few weeks ago. Okay. Um, Hayabusa 2 uh, from Japan, JAXA, just got to Ryugu. I and the one from Japan. Yes, it, it uh, uh, basically shot a bullet into the surface of Ryugu, this asteroid, oh. and uh, took a sample collection, we hope. And uh, it's going to return with that in a couple years, uh, maybe next year. I'm not sure. And then it's also going to drop a small explosive device onto the surface of Ryugu and explode that and also get get some deeper samples. So pretty cool that's going on. And then, of course, uh, the um, SpaceX launch recently where they were able to successfully dock a um, uh, a um, capsule that can hold humans to, to capsule uh, onto the ISS, onto the International Space Station. So it's going to give more flexibility to ISS. It means that, oh, you know, right. Um, right, SpaceX right, right. is getting better at, at doing things that, 
you know, people can go on. So uh, very exciting. Lots of exciting space stuff going on. Right, right. Check out planetary planetary.org for more details. <laughs> Nerd. Bill Nye, the science guy. He's the boo, CEO. Boo, boo, boo. So yeah, um, I think we're pretty much done. Yeah, and I need to go to rehearsal. So okay, cool. Cool. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening. And thank you for listening. Peace out, Girl Scout. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.